welcome to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, major fangirl of novels, and delighted to have on with me today Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor, who actually studies them. Today we're discussing her brand new book, The Evangelical Imagination, How Stories, Images, and Metaphors Created a Culture in Crisis. From that book, we're focusing in this conversation on the power of imagination and our formation as humans through literature and products of culture. Karen Swallow Pryor is a reader, writer, and professor. She's the author of multiple books, including The Evangelical Imagination, On Reading Well, and Fierce Convictions. She and her husband live on a hundred-year-old homestead in central Virginia with dogs, chickens, and lots of books. Dr. Pryor, welcome back to Old Books with Grace. It's so good to be back with you. (laughs) You're the first return guest I've ever had, and I'm really delighted to have you back. Well, I'm very honored and delighted (laughs) to be with you. So um, I I ask to get to know you questions, and I don't remember what you asked last time, so this is going to be... or what you answered last time. So this is going to be fun and uh, a new thing, even though you've answered them before, which is what is your favorite book or author from more than 50 years ago and why? Yeah. So uh, I I don't remember what I answered last time and I do give different answers depending on the day. (laughs) Sure. So absolutely. Today I'm going to say, since you asked, I'm going to answer um, my favorite author um, because it might be different if it's a favorite book, but I'm just going to say Jane Austen today is my favorite author. Who can resist? Yeah, she's just that good. All of the books, you know. How would you, uh, what would you say are her top two in your opinion? I like hearing people's answers Mm. to this. Um, well, I, I, de- I definitely adore Pride and Prejudice. I just, you know, it's, it's cliche, but it's, you know, what? It's, there's a it's reason. So there's a yeah, reason yeah. for the there's cliche. Reason, reason, yes. Right. It's just so good. Um, and then I guess I would say, and some of them I haven't read in a long time or read as much. So I'm just going to go with Persuasion. Those are my top two. Well, I guess we both have good taste. So <laughs> I, I will not argue with you about our good taste or about those two being the top two. I think that uh, for a long time, Pride and Prejudice was my favorite, favorite, loved it. And then I read Persuasion in graduate school again after reading it a much earlier. And as a more grown up person reading mm-hmm. it, I mm-hmm. it, it really hit different. And, and so and then I was like, oh, no. Has it dethroned Pride and Prejudice? But I think it just depends on the season, which one I like better. They're both so good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, they're both very much Jane Austen, but they are very different. Yes. You know? So that's yes. what's cool about her. She kind of grew up along with her books, I think. You know? She did. And they're and they're delightful at every stage, um, mm-hmm. which is... Which is uh, not a given for all mm-hmm. authors who have different stages of writing. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so then number two, which literary character do you most identify with and why? 
Okay. Now I don't remember what I said before and I, but I know I've never given this answer before. And partly it's because of what we were just talking about, but partly I think it really is like things I've been going through in my mm-hmm. life recently. So I am going to say Anne Elliot. Yay. <laughs> because, um, you know, yeah, as we've already said, like she is a more mature, older character than you often find in, in books of, you know, of a, of no, in novels. Um, and I'm, older too in case you didn't notice um, <laughs> but also just the entire like Anne Elliot taking bad advice that was well intended mm. um and mm. being hurt by it but not bitter by it and overcoming anyway and at all like that just feels very poignant to me right mm. now like it's just life is life is so complicated and you know we are, it's good to listen to people we trust and people we trust can make mistakes or prove untrustworthy, but that doesn't mean it's all or not. And it doesn't mean that, you know, it can't all be redeemed. So mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Oh, that's such a lovely answer. I love that. And I love your point about the complexity of trust where, mm-hmm. um, and, and Anne's complexity in knowing later that it was a mistake and yet not holding that Mm -hmm. bitterness and not holding, Mm -hmm. uh, not like rejecting Lady Russell or cutting her out of her life, though it was a costly mistake. Um, But there's such a beauty there and a a Mm -hmm. fullness there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I want to, I want to clarify that I want to be like Anne Elliot, (laughs) but I might not be like her yet. So I want to be like Ann Elliot too. That's a good answer. <laughs> well, um, you wrote this great book um, recently that just came out called The Evangelical Imagination, How Stories, Images, and Metaphors Created a Culture in Crisis. So you're an evangelical. I was raised evangelical and I'm still deeply formed by evangelicalism to this day. But I also think this book is for anyone because of the way you talk about imagination and our formation through literature and products of culture. Could you tell us a little bit about this book for the folks who haven't read it yet? Yeah, so, yeah, as you said, I'm evangelical and I've also um, taught in evangelical institutions for you know, 25 or more years more years, I guess, actually. And so I have worked a great deal with um, students and younger people who have grown up in like the current evangelical subculture. Um, And that's like sort of like one sort of set of experiences. But my experience is having done my um, PhD dissertation PhD dissertation in the area of 18th century and the growth of evangelicalism and the rise of it in England and its influence on literature and the novel. Um, And so kind of putting those two things together, like what was rich and historical and, you know, complicated, but pretty good in history about the evangelical movement versus what's brought us to this point of crisis that I mentioned in the subtitle of the book. Um, And so in some ways, it's the me figuring out how we got here um, and um, why the term and 
the movement is so complicated right now and and so um, controversial. Uh, you know, some people think it's great. Some people think it's bad. They want to renounce it. And so I'm just saying, hey, here here's how we got here, but in the terms of the imagination. Hmm. Now, why imagination specifically? So we're conditioned to thinking about imagination as connected with children or uh, sort of a solitary activity that you do, like daydreaming when you're bored or, or something like that. Um, so what has imagination got to do with cultural movements, history, communities, mm. that kind of stuff? Yeah, well, there are sort of two strains of, of an answer that I want to give. Um, you know, a lot of people have likened or connected this book to a much earlier work by the his- historian Mark Knoll called the evangelical mind and 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 uh you know from that book is like 20 or 30 years old and mm-hmm. and um the scandal of the evangelical mind that's what it is and he, you know spoiler alert he says the scandal is there is no mind you know the evangelicalism <laughs> is sort of anti-intellectual uh-huh. uh, it's a devastating book very well done and you know and and very a lot of a lot of history and truth there um, my book, you know, when, when we're talking about the imagination, it's not the same thing. You know, it's not some people might. Cause, oh, some people have kind of joked. Well, the evangelicals don't have an imagination. Right. Like they They're, don't. Uh, like li- right, literal right, everything. Right, literal. Right. Literal, right, literal. Right, yes. right. Right. But it, but that's the whole point is that we all are using our imaginations, whether we realize it or not, mm. and whether we're using them well or not. So the imagination, we think of it as something, as you said, like individual, like, oh, she has a good imagination or I don't have a very good imagination. No, we all are using our imaginations whether we're keenly aware of it or not whether we are forming that imagination well or not regardless of what we're filling it with whether it's good you know true images and stories or false ones healthy ones unhealthy ones everything that we are as thinking sentient beings is held together by the imagination is that important but then the other thing is, is that, and I t- really do unpack this in the book, that I'm also talking about um, the social imaginary, mm-hmm. which is a philosophical concept um, dealt with by different people, but I draw on the work of Charles Taylor. Um, and this is the more communal or social aspect of imagination. And Taylor defines a social imaginary as a precognitive pool of of myths, legends, stories, um, ideas, visions for the good life, things that we might not really be consciously aware of. In fact, he says that they're precognitive, but they're sort of underneath the surface, um, driving us, motivating us, shaping us. And so, because we've just inherited them as being in being part of a culture or community. And it's not as though there's only one or we exist in only one. Um, But, if we're evangelicals, we have inherited a number of concepts and metaphors and ideas that we may not even realize have been inherited. We just think that that's how things are um, until we kind of look beneath the surface and examine them. Um, and that's what I try to do in this book with a few of those. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think what what you point out and what makes it especially uh 
tricky for a movement like evangelicalism is this is a movement that disassociates itself from traditions that separates itself. Uh, and, uh, and so the idea of having a tradition behind all of this is a lot more familiar to other, other branches of Christianity, other parts of Christianity that are more sort of, they too have their own, uh, precognitive social imaginaries that they aren't super aware of. But on the other hand, they're also more aware of the sort of wellsprings and origins and beginnings and all of this than, than evangelicalism can be sometimes. And, um, no, this is so insightful. I've done so many interviews on this and you're the first person to make this really important observation. Um, because that, that's exactly what makes this harder for evangelicals yes. to do. Cause I, you know, cause my whole point is that you know, like we're all creatures of culture. We all inherit these yes. things. You know, evangelicals aren't special that way, No, but it is, a, it is harder because we see ourselves as, as, as you said, was broken from tradition as individuals and all of that. So you have articulated um, so well uh, what's, yeah, what what I have been trying to articulate. So thank you. <laughs> oh, I, that's, I found that really compelling um, because uh, it, it's so interesting. I, I'm in a, I attend an Episcopalian church now, and it's so interesting to be in a tradition that is so much more, that still has all of those things bubbling under the surface because we all do. We're all humans. We all are ima- creatures of imagination, but that is way more conscious about, look, this strand comes out of this thing and that's why we do are doing X, you know, or whatever right. in a way that, um, that when I was growing up and as a young adult, I didn't really, I was not aware of. And so I, I was really struck by that while reading your book and the the hard work of kind of pulling out some of this and shaking it around and seeing mm-hmm. what comes out. Um, I, I really liked this quote that you have explaining the role of imagination. Sadly, I didn't write the page down, but you write, our very desires are ordered, if not produced, by the power of our imaginations and the social imaginary that is our context. And I think that is um, that speaks to the power of imagination because it helps tell us what we want and what yes. we are looking for, right? And so yes. and that's a very hard thing to get down to the bottom of. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I find a helpful um, example from sort of outside evangelicalism that I think a lot of people might relate to comes straight from the American dream, which mm. really is lurking beneath the surface mm-hmm. for most of us, if yes. we're American, whether we realize it or not. Yes. And that's home ownership, mm. right? So like, so for generations upon generations, the American dream has been sort of um, captured by the idea of owning, you know, owning a home. So for young people, that that's a goal and desire. And, and of course, that depending on the economics of any era that shifts. But I I remember, um, you know, my husband and I married young and we were poor and it took us a long time to, to buy a home, our first home. I mean, it's taking other, it's taking young people much longer these days. And, you know, for, Mm -hmm. but when, when I was that age, most of people were buying a home earlier and sooner or sooner than we did. And I just remember one day, all of a sudden, realizing that my my anxiety about that and my sense of like being a failure 
was entirely imaginary. Like, <laughs> like I didn't need to, like, I didn't, like, we, yes. we were, I didn't need to set that up as a measure or standard. I just had inherited that. Yes. And, and then I examined it and said, no, it's actually okay that, and I'm okay with, you know, if it takes us a long time or never happens or whatever, but I just didn't know that it was there under the surface, um, driving me and forming Mm -hmm. me and giving me anxiety that I didn't need just because it was an unexamined assumption. Yeah, that's a good example. And a good example, because yeah, it's a very American one that is, uh, I mean, Americans have a lot have a have a lot of uns- it's the, it's a, actually very similar in a lot of ways. And I know that you actually talk in your book about uh, the formation of America and the formation of evangelicalism. Now, those were happening at mm-hmm. very similar times, right. um, and uh, and so it's it's really interesting to see how much they have in common with each other. Really uh, about seeing yourself as a person who breaks away as a movement that breaks away and then not being honest necessarily about all the things that you're inheriting, which is American to a T. Um, but, uh, so, okay. Um, I wanted to ask you, how did you come up with the idea for this book? Cause, um, it's, uh, how do I want to say it's kind of, it's not necessarily an obvious one that I would be like, oh, yes, this. Um, each chapter you cover a different theme, uh, a trope, one might say, like empire or improvement or um, uh, conversion, testimony, all of these different themes, and and then work them into these, uh, tracing the, the, the tradition of that imagery. How did you come up with this? Hmm. What prompted it? Yeah, I mean, there are a few things that came together. Um, and what I talk about in the book is just teaching Victorian literature to evangelical students and, and having my students look at that culture and those works of literature that had, you know, rigid gender roles and emphasized family values and emphasized, you know, imperialism and colonialism um, and racism and but especially the gender issues, my students would say, wow, this, you know, this is like the I grew up, grew up being taught this, like it's biblical. Mm-hmm. And so we, we would say, OK, well, let's look at this idea. You know, is is the idea of the woman being the angel in the house? Is that biblical or is that just Victorian? And so that was sort of the germ of the idea. But at the same time, you know, so that's just the one thing. But also I was very formed um for a long time by the idea of biblical worldview, which is very rational and cognitive and analytical and like, let's take this biblical idea and apply it to this topic and what do we get? Um, And yet I realized, you know, it wasn't until I encountered the work um, of James K.A. Smith, who talks Mm -hmm. about, you know, our being desiring creatures before we are thinking creatures. uh, And that really started to change the way I thought about, you know, discipleship and teaching and formation um, and, you know, on an individual level. And then, of course, when I encountered Charles Taylor and the social imaginary, all these things just sort of came together. And I, and I just wanted to say, like, you know, this is why we are the way we are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this, this, you know, that question, why are you the way you are, evangelicals? <laughs> well, this book is, you know, just a partial answer, but it's a start at an answer. Mm-hmm. 
So let's talk about one of the metaphors that you cover. I think um, part of what makes this book uh, do such interesting things is that you're close reading these ideas and diving into the actual metaphors and not um, not writing like a grand narrative as much about it. So one is conversion, um, which is interesting because I don't really think of that as a metaphor. But uh, as you point out, of course, all language is metaphorical. But um, you talk about the influence in... Uh, of uh, the 18th century novel Pamela by Samuel mm-hmm. Richardson. And I am i took an early novels class in grad school. I was totally geeking out over this Pamela section. It's so <laughs> great. Um, but, I can um, never get enough of Pamela. <laughs> okay, let's put out a plug. If you like weird novels, you should read Pamela by Samuel Richardson. It is weird. Um, anyways, I'm going to side note that for a moment, but um, could you tell us a little bit about Pamela and how it formed the imagination or social imaginary for what conversion is? Because uh, why are we talking about a novel that very few people read today? One of the <laughs> earliest novels as an enormous social influence. What's going on? Oh, wow. Wow. Okay. So let me back up just a little bit and say that at the beginning of the book, I do sort of I do offer the main definitions of evangelicalism as a 300-year-old movement. Mm-hmm. Um, the most widely accepted one being that of David Bebbington, who identifies the four characteristics of evangelicalism as being an emphasis on conversion, an emphasis mm-hmm. on um, biblicism, the authority of the Bible, um, an emphasis on the crucifixion, and an emphasis on activism. So those are kind of the four overarching things that people can you know, quibble with if they want, but that's basically set. And so conversion was really, you know, central to the rise of evangelicalism in the 18th century. The idea, you know, again, in England, in the context of a state church, if you're born, you know, you're basically already default a Christian. And the evangelicals came along and said, well, you know, we've got to, you know, bring, you know, emphasize the need for individual conversion. And so, even the early evangelicals, the Wesleys, with George Whitfield, they were doing this. And obviously, this is sort of a, you know, among other things, it's a little battle between sort of the upstart Methodists and the ang- traditional Anglicans. Mm-hmm. And so even in literature, there are sort of these battles um, with Henry Fielding really denouncing Pamela. Um, and Richardson, who was a, a working class man, which, you know, again, even then evangelicals were associated more with, you know, the working class and or the, the poor. They were, you know, less um, empowered and, and uh, more marginalized in general. And so Richardson, this working class man who doesn't have a classical education, writes this novel using the voice and words that, you know, uh, basically like uh, letters and then a diary of a young servant girl who is being, you know, pursued and almost sexually assaulted, is sexually assaulted by her master, Mm -hmm. uh, which is very shocking for us today. But this was sort of in, you know, in this time, it was just sort of Everyone expected this to happen. And Pamela becomes a paragon of virtue because she resists, even though he tries to tempt her with money and power and all these things. She's you know, she's literally a girl who has nothing. Um, and she resists and she ends up, you know, seeing, you know, winning him over. It's like missionary dating, 18th century style, right? <laughs> <laughs> and 
it, so the the importance the, I I could go on and on about the import the literary importance of the novel, <laughs> but its importance in evangelicalism was this is this idea of first of all Pamela as an individual maintaining her virtue, but also because of her witness. Um, and her faithfulness, she wins over this convert who's you know, much more powerful and wealthier than her. And then he, you know, and then they, they, you know, change their whole community basically because, because I don't want to give too much away. It's a little, you know, hard for us to understand in this context, but, but this is an early example of what we could, we could roughly call an evangelical novel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you see its roots if you read uh, a lot of Christian fiction of today, this story of a single person's conversion or change, and then that ripple outward effect and how uh, how powerful that idea is as not just as somebody, as something that some, some, bleh, that really does happen to people sometimes, but as a model, as right. a, as a uh, form that your life should probably follow if you are authentic or something. Right, um, exactly. I love that you told in the book, you tell, I didn't know this, that uh, one churchman, when Pamela converts her, uh, her boss, how he rang the church bells. And I, I could, <laughs> I was, I just was tickled by that. <laughs> People were really, yeah, this was like the, I don't know what the analogy is like, Everyone was following it. Like I was going to say Taylor Swift, but that's probably not the best analogy. But you know, it's like a soap opera unfolding in the in the novel. It was it was one of the first bestsellers. This novel. Yeah, it's it is such an interesting book and so strange, but also so familiar because it is part of that context yes. that you just sort of take in and learning how um, kind of. Uh, revolutionary it was at the time sets it in in perspective of how uh of its power as a story and how formative it is right right so another theme that you pick up um that is an interesting one is the uh theme of improvement and this has been a sort of trope of evangelicalism from its very beginnings in in some really good ways and in some less good ways Mm -hmm. and so uh, from the roots of our modern day obsession with self-help books, all of that, mm-hmm. to the Pilgrim's Progress and um, the early Methodist movement, you discuss all that. Um, what was the craze over improvement? And what's the difference between like the idea or the theme of improvement and and the real call into sanctification, which is mm-hmm. a really interesting thing that you work on? Yeah. So, I mean, evangelicalism is the product of modernity and the enlightenment mm-hmm. um in many ways um i'll just have to leave that on path for now but but, <laughs> but evangelicals you know again going back to the emphasis on conversion there's an emphasis on the individual mm-hmm. individual conversion individual souls even pamela you know she says that you know she, my soul is the is a worth the same worth of that of a princess or something like that this is revolutionary because nobody cares about servant girls in the 18th century right and pamela says no my soul is as important as the soul of a princess like and evangelicals believe this i believe this right i'm an evangelical yes Yes. and so once we recognize that that every individual is equally important and equally valuable 
then we start to care about individuals, right? Yeah. And that also means, and, the, and this is like the, the such good of the evangelicals in um, the rise of the of the movement in its first couple of centuries is is caring about the poor, caring about the laborers, caring about the slaves. In in England, it was you know evangelicals joined with other faith communities to work to ast- abolish the slave trade yes. because they actually thought. Those individuals were valuable and important. Um, yes. And so in that sense, improvement of that kind was inherent to evangelical understanding. Um, but then when you combine it with the kinds of improvements that came about um, because of the Industrial Revolution and um, and then mass methods of mass production, um then all of a sudden it just becomes automated and automatic, like improvement for improvement's sake. And that's kind of what I trace through. And then you get industries who are, you know, selling books and selling programs and selling whatever on how to improve and self-help, you know, and uh, the actual name of, an, of a novel in, in uh, the 1800s uh, that was the first self-help book. I did not know that, and and when I read that, I uh, that I didn't know that it was even around that early. I mean, yeah, that, that by Samuel idea. Smiles. <laughs> what a great name for a self help author. <laughs> and you know, and and one of the important qualities of that book is that the improve. Well, it's just like the title says, self help. He he gives these stories of people who improve themselves through their own individual grit and determination and overcoming mm-hmm. of obstacles. So it's very much a, about, you know, your own responsibility for your improvement as opposed to systemic and social and community um, contexts that can make a huge difference on whether or not one improves or not. And so, so what started out is like, we care about Every individual soul, every individual soul and person is equal in dignity and worth. So therefore, let's care about these people, each person, which is good. Then it just becomes sort of distorted and excessive and just improvement for improvement's sake. And I, you know, kind of brush that off with the whole new and improved phrase. I mean, we all know, like, it it must work or the marketers wouldn't do it, but you can just change the packaging on the box and call it new and improved and nothing's changed. But for, we think that, Oh, oh it must be new and improved. So uh, we do all for that sometimes. Yeah. And what, what I appreciated is that um, this is a, a fairly nuanced perspective about it in that you're pulling out these things that are really positive and, um, really did improve, and I use improve with scare quotes, but really did improve uh, standards of living, conditions for people. The anti-slavery movement is a big example. There are other movements, too, that this particular brand of individualism um, actually really helped and did really good things. And then on the flip side of the coin, that when it becomes distorted or or disengaged from rootedness in the value of each person mm-hmm. it ends up just becoming about in about increasing value of something um right it, it becomes a marketing blood. campaign yeah. a marketing yeah. campaign a capitalistic endeavor um and and then we lose sight of you know what I, I draw out in the chapter is what it means as a christian to actually become sanctified yes. right because yeah. that's you know that is we are to undergo sanctification, but that's not quite the same thing as 
improvement. And we can, it's easy in this climate to mistake the two. Yes. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, so which chapter, the themes are also different from each other. They're all interrelated as we see, but the themes are so different. Which chapter was the most surprising or illuminating for you to write, having taught Victorian and early mm-hmm. uh, early novels for a long time? Um, was there anything that you turned up as you wrote that you were surprised by or really, oh my gosh, I didn't realize the depths or mm-hmm. how did that work for you? Yeah. So I, you know, I, as I said before, I think the chapter I knew I was going to write was the one on domesticity. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't know how, what my angle would be, but that, that's sort of how the whole idea emerged in the classroom is, is just, you know, these rigid gender roles, the separate spheres for men and women that arose in, in the Victorian age. So I knew that one would be there. I also knew and conversion because that's so central to um, evangelicalism. And I knew, this was actually one of the earliest chapters that I wrote or I worked on because I had a, I gave a few talks on it. I knew I would write about sentimentality because I, you know, I teach sentimental literature. Mm-hmm. I, I teach some, you know, aesthetic theory. And so I care about good art. And, and I knew I'd write about evangelical bad art. But in the process of writing that chapter... I actually discovered the discipline of material culture and read some scholars in that field. And I, I, I felt increasingly the need to correct myself mm. for being so critical of the sentimental, sappy, terrible art mm-hmm. and to be a little bit more sympathetic to um material comforts, I guess, and the mm-hmm. fact that just being embodied beings um, who, you know, we, we have to have material things and we don't always, it doesn't have to be high art all the time. Um, you know, we can wear our cheesy t-shirt or, you know, have our cheesy placard on the wall or whatever, or go to our grandma's house and see her Walter Solomon head of Christ and not, you know, uh-huh. insult her. Um, and so I, I found, I wanted to correct myself for my tendency to really critique the sentimental by talking about the importance of the material. And so that chapter on materiality was like, I didn't plan to write that. I just, it, it grew out of writing the one on sentimentality. Really interesting. As a companion, Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is a fraught question um, because you think of that sometimes uh, I think what we would classify as sentimental art can, can uh, it can either stop you from progressing in thinking deeply about something and thinking about, say, you know, you bring up Salman's Head of Christ, the very famous blonde Jesus looking like a a class photo from the mid-century or even class photos today. My kids just brought home their class photos and it's the same faded (laughs) blue background that has existed for a zillion years. Um, But uh, how you can can learn how to see that and note its context and note, okay, Jesus actually wasn't white and I probably should not think of him that way because it carries with it all this other baggage that can be really damaging. Um, And then also there's this side to art that people, um, that sentimental art that is invitational too in a, in a, in a, um, yeah, in an embodied Mm -hmm. comforting way of, Mm -hmm. oh, this, 
I've seen this many times and it brings me comfort in this particular way. And um, I love the tension of holding those things together because it speaks to a real complexity about us as people. (laughs) So, and, and that's really what I was trying to do throughout the whole book with all of the metaphors and tropes and images I use is to kind of to, to dive into the tension and to hopefully model a way of, of, recognizing, thinking about, and embracing the tension and where things are out of balance, you know, correcting the balance. Yeah. And I think that's um, really hard to do, but also something that we need really badly right now um, culturally is that we need to be able to slowly work on disentangling rather than um, sort of burning things down mm-hmm. yeah. as, as which yeah. is easier to do. It's much, right. and, and it's easier to be really, and honestly, rightfully, sometimes some things do need to be burned down. But um, the mistake, I think, is when you is when it's just broad sweeps all the time, um, and being able to to go in and say, okay, well, what's what's beautiful and valuable, or what has historically ministered, and we might not want to do that anymore, but we need to hold this tension that we're pretty broken and we're still figuring things out <laughs> and that and people right. are going to say that about us in 50 years right. too. <laughs> exactly exactly and i mean that that's just what should keep us humble is that yeah. that reality yeah yeah um that being said uh, i think a very a very dark moment is in the empire chapter um and i think i i i had read Rudyard Kipling's uh, White Man's Burden before, but every time you read it, it is, it is just, uh, who mm-hmm. it is, it, it horribly speaks to the present moment, I think. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that uh, I felt that way too about Angel in the House, the Coventry Patmore uh, Victorian poem that w- was so influential and that I hadn't read, I'd heard the name before many times, but, um, hadn't read it. And you begin to realize how, um, imagination that comes through these, these popular texts, uh, how it still kind of has its grasp over us in a lot of ways and how damaging that is. And I wanted to point those two out specifically, because I think they were both sort of moments of horror as I was reading about mm-hmm. the, uh, the places in our imaginations that are dark places that we have to kind of shine light into. Right, right. And these, you know, it's important to point out that these, these were texts that they weren't like marginal texts that no, no. these were extremely no. popular, well-loved. Right. These even, were not fringe. It's not right, like, right. it's not like you're pointing to like, uh, I don't know, like Mein Kampf or something right. for people in America. Like it, that's where you're like, oh, from, no, these are mainstream Extremely beloved, formative. Belo- beloved works that yes. we now read, yeah. hopefully, with very different eyes. Yeah. 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 Um, well, uh, one of your kind of takeaways from the book is the need for our awareness, regardless of what tradition we belong to, regardless of our social imaginaries and formative influences, our awareness that we're constantly interpreting scripture, ourselves, our culture, that nothing is actually truly individual, but within community and tradition, um, even when unacknowledged. And I just wanted to ask you, how can we foster that awareness and what is at stake there? Mm. Well, I think, I mean, a lot is at stake. A lot is at stake when we don't 
realize that we are interpreting in community and that we we are shaped by you know even just even just you know we could we could talk a, a very simple example is um hearing the word of god preached um and which verses and passages get emphasized and which yeah. ones get left out right yeah. just just you know just that alone um knowing that that's Every church, every pastor is going to emphasize some, leave some out because you can't cover it all. And that makes a difference. Um, and so, so much is at stake. I mean, I would say the whole, you know, the the, tr- the whole truth is at stake because we, we have to, you know, we want to aim for the whole truth. How can we um, grapple with it? Well, for, you know, it's kind of a cliche, but it's like that whole, like just knowing the problem is like half of the battle or mm-hmm. something like that. So just be, just realizing that there's so much that we're unaware of. Like we don't know what we don't know. I talk yes. about that in the book, but at least recognizing that saying, huh, I, I, there, there are things I don't know. I don't know. Um, so we can be in conversation with people from different um Dreams of, of Christianity or different faiths or different cultures. Um, we can read, you know, read from faithful and listen to faithful Christians who come from cultures and traditions other than our own because they read, they're going to read and receive a passage very differently than mm-hmm. we are. Not all of them, of course, but, um, and so we have to be aware, we have to be intentional. And then once we are, we can be in conversation and we can we can seek and we can listen, we can read. Um, uh, even just reading, this is why I love reading works of literature from just even, you know, a couple of centuries ago, you read works of literature from even longer ago. And <laughs> yeah. it, it is like reading ourselves because we, you know, when we read these other believers or people's traditions and understandings, and they're so different from our own, uh, the, you know, we inherently have to ask, like, well, how did we, how did they get there? How did we get here? I mean, that's just what reading literature and history does for us, if we will do it. Yes. Yeah. C.S. Lewis has that wonderful introduction to St. Athanasius. I quote it all the time, but it's that, um, that the only way that you can sort of combat the things that you don't know that you believe, the things that are so deep in you that you just take utterly for granted, um, is by by reading the works of the past. Uh, he calls it the clean sea breeze, letting the clean mm-hmm. sea breeze uh, blow through your mind. And mm-hmm. um, and whether that's the past of 50 years ago, the past of 150 years ago, the past of 500 years ago, all of those things are going to show you different things. Um, and, and so I totally believe that and have, have seen it in myself. So, and you have a podcast named for that. Idea, I do, right? I do. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I was trying to find this um, <laughs> this quote from uh, this medieval writer, and I can't remember. I had read a bunch all at once. Oh, it was William of Santieri, and he he writes. He's a 12th century monk and theologian, and he writes: "The highest knowledge that a man can hear and now attain consists in knowing in what way he does not know." Mm. and um I yeah I know I just I'm like okay well I think yeah that kind of says it (laughs) that's that's what I'm yeah I I didn't need to write this book I just needed to find this monk (laughs) (laughs) William of Santieri yes he's he's uh he's he he really kind of encapsulated it so Mm, well um where can folks find you online if they would like to know more about what you're up to and what you're working on? 
Well, my big project right now, my newest is, you know, like everyone else, I've started a Substack newsletter. Um, it's called The Priory. So, oh, I um, love it. Yes, good yeah, pun on the yeah, name. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm I, I'm doing a number of things there, but mainly right now, I'm just I'm teaching through my British literature survey class by writing about Beowulf. Next, we're going to do the Canterbury Tales. So, um, yeah, I would encourage you to subscribe. It's free. Um, you can find me on you know, Twitter and Instagram and just basic information on my website, karenswallowprior.com. And I will put in a personal pl- plug, which is that um, I follow your Substack and I'm really excited for this uh, walk through historical literature. I just think we can't have enough of such things. I'm very pleased. So I'm glad oh, you're doing that. That's been fun. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on again and chatting with me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Thanks again for listening to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, and here's a little plug. I have a new book out on Halloween. It's called Jesus Through Medieval Eyes, Beholding Christ with the Artists, Mystics, and Theologians of the Middle Ages. And you can pre-order that anywhere you buy your books. And if you're interested in learning more about how medieval Christians were writing, drawing, thinking about the person of Jesus Christ and my reflections on these beautiful works of art, poetry, and these baffling things they say and do, then check it out. You can also find me online on Instagram at Old Books with Grace or on Twitter at Grace Hammond PhD. I also have a Substack newsletter that comes out once a month called Medievalish with Grace Hammond. And it's one of my favorite projects that I work on. Uh, Each month has a little meditation or group of thoughts on medieval poetry, theology, images, all kinds of things. Check that out if you're interested at gracehammond.substack.com. Thanks for listening to Old Books of Grace, and I'll see you next time.